My name is Chris Gosden and I'm Professor of European Archaeology here at the uh, University of Oxford and the School of Archaeology. Uh, I, I've got a variety of roles and responsibilities. Um, one of the key things I do is teach students at various different levels in archaeology from the first year undergraduates through to postgraduate students of various kinds and I must say I really love um, teaching in its, in its different forms. Uh, another key thing that I do is research in various different ways which again ranges from excavation through to laboratory analysis and writing of various kinds. Um, and the last thing I do, which to me is one of the least things I do, is, is administration of various different sorts. So when did you first become interested in archaeology? Well, I suppose in a way I've always been interested in archaeology. I spent a lot of my childhood collecting things like fossils, which I know isn't archaeology, but it got me interested in the past and the possibility of actually going out and finding out things for yourself. Um, it really crystallised when I went on an excavation in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire um, in 1973 when they were building a new courthouse and they were, we excavated a, an Anglo-Saxon settlement. And for me, it was love at first sight. It's not something I'd ever really done before. And the whole process of, of at times, fairly painstakingly excavating and at other times getting a pickaxe out and, and being a bit more energetic. And, it, and it's always been, for me, the combination of physical work and intellectual that makes archaeology special. And if, we, if I was in a discipline that had one or the other of those, I wouldn't be as excited as I am about the combination of them. And this led to you following it professionally? It did. I'd applied to university to do psychology, which I was always slightly lukewarm about. And then as soon as I, I excavated, I excavated in Aylesbury and then went to Peterborough um, and dug on a big Roman site, which was fantastic because it had walls and floors and, and nice finds. And for the beginner, the Romans are very good because you can see where you are and, and you understand a bit about what they're like. So having done that, I wrote off to um, the university I went to, Sheffield, and said I didn't want to do psychology anymore, I'd like to do archaeology. And to my slight surprise, they said, yes, okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, so then I, I started studying an undergraduate degree in archaeology in Sheffield. And so where did this lead to? Where did you work? Um, can you talk about some of the projects you've been involved with? I've been involved in a whole variety of projects over the years. After my undergraduate degree, I went off to Germany for a year, which was fantastic, digging early farming settlements, Neolithic settlements. Um, There's this huge open cast coal mine, and all the sites that were about to be destroyed by the coal mine were being excavated. So we got a chance to have a look at this very complex landscape from the Neolithic and the Bronze Age periods. I then went to Czechoslovakia, as it was, it was called, back in the 70s to do my PhD. Um, and I spent a year in, in Prague and other places. Um, and one of the fantastic things about archaeology is that you do get to travel around and go to exciting places and meet some quite incredible people. Um, I then met an Australian in the pub, as one does, um, and ended up in, in Australia for 10 years um, doing field work in Papua New Guinea, which is very different to, to anything from Europe. Yeah. Uh, very exciting Can you place. 
describe some of the uh, activities you were doing in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I mean, the great thing about Papua New Guinea is that the, very little is known about the archaeology. It's a huge country. Um, very few archaeologists have ever worked there. So almost every, everywhere you work in New Guinea, you find things that nobody ever expected. So one of the great discoveries of my life was to, to excavate a cave site in a place called New Ireland, which is one of the offshore islands of, of New Guinea, which turned out to be 38,000 years old and um, was the period at which people were first moving, the first humans moved into New Guinea, Australia, um, and, and then out to the islands. And it's, it's possibly the earliest evidence of people using an island anywhere in the world. Um, and at that period of time, they sailed into or, or paddled into the islands, so they were able to move around by sea. Um, but also these islands didn't have very much on them in terms of food, so they were able to survive in quite poor environments. Um, so one of the things that we found was, was a, a series of stone tools, um, a, a bit like this but rather more crude. Um, and people were um, using stone from the local areas uh, way back when, about 38,000 years ago. But then from about 20,000 years ago, they start trading in stone. So they're moving stone into the area um, and, and increasing the range of resources that they had. Um, and as well as moving stone, they moved animals and plants. So prior to farming, people were altering and managing their landscapes in a whole variety of, of different ways. And this would then help towards your understanding of archaeology generally and the way that uh, the humans um, moved out of Africa, perhaps. It helps to put things in context, does it? Well, it was part of a much bigger picture of, of people moving into the Pacific. And the Pacific is about a third of the world's surface. Um, and most of it was colonised in the last 3,000 years. But, but our thought is that many of the skills that they needed to colonise the far Pacific developed in the sort of nursery of the offshore islands in New Guinea. So people learnt to sail and move around by sea. Those early cave sites have some of the earliest evidence of fishing anywhere in the world. So they used to learn to exploit marine resources. But also, very importantly, people were moving things around. Um, so they lived in quite poor environments, but they were able to boost those environments by bringing plants, animals, stone, a whole range of things in from elsewhere. And when you live in very small islands, like the islands of the far Pacific, then you need to bring lots of things with you and assemble. People talk about transported landscapes, that they took a whole range of different things with them, and a whole range of skills as well, of knowledge, of, of ways of putting things together. So it sounds that you're definitely, um, one of your particular interests is in prehistory. Yes, I, I do like um, prehistory. I, I mean, one of the things is I do like most elements of archaeology, it must be said. Um, but uh, yes, I mean, the, the, the deep prehistoric period is, is a really important one. But the other thing that I got interested in New Guinea was the colonial period, the other end of the story, the last couple of hundred years, and the sorts of changes that have come about in people's lives due to their encounter with the outside world. And I did some archaeological work on sites of that period, but also looked at museum collections around the world to look at the sorts of artefacts that people had, say, a hundred years ago, that they don't have any more, and that they've substituted modern things for, for what they had more traditionally. 
So, so by combining archaeology and things like museum collections, you can start to look in quite a rich way at the ways in which people's lives have changed. And what are your current interests? What, are you, what have you been investigating recently in, uh, since you've been here in Oxford as Professor of European Archaeology? Coming to Oxford, which I did in 1994, to some degree I've come back to my European interests. Um, and Gary Locke and I have been working in areas west of Oxford um, for the last 15 years now um, on a series of, of Iron Age and Roman sites. Um, hill forts, first of all, famous hill fort at Whitehorse Hill. Um, and then a series of other hill forts along the Ridgeway on the Berkshire Downs. And for the last 10 years, we've been working at a fantastic site um, called Marcham, which is down in the Vale of the White Horse um, and is a site that starts in the Roman period, uh, sorry, starts in the Iron Age period. Um, we have a whole series of Iron Age remains that we're still trying to make sense of. And then in the Roman period, the activities on the site were formalised around a temple on the one hand and a huge great amphitheatre on the other and various quite large buildings. So one of the things there that we're interested in is the, the shift from a prehistoric way of life um, into the, the Roman period, which to some degree is documented through um, you know, written sources and various things. And this seems to be still a community um, archaeological site because you use it as a training dig now for the university. One of the great things about all those excavations, the ones up on the Ridgeway and the one now at Marcham, is that we've had a lot of involvement from lots of different people. We've had students of a variety of types, undergraduate students, continuing education students. Well, we've also had lots of people from the local community Who've, who've either come to have a look or, or some of whom have come to take part. And, and one of the great things about archaeology is that people are, are very interested in what happens in their own backyard and also in the process of how you actually excavate a site, make sense of it. So we've, we've, we've made some very good links and some very good friends, it must be said, Absolutely. in that area yes. Um, yes. over the last sort of 15 years or so. And just to finish, um, how do you see the role of archaeology today? Archaeology today, I mean, I think nobody can really operate in the present without understanding where they come from. Um, so it's the longer term trajectory of, of human societies and, and human change. As, as a, for instance, I mean, one of the things that we're thinking about marching is that it was a, a Roman religious site. And Roman religion was characterised by its openness by modern standards. That as people moved around the Roman Empire, they could, they could worship local gods. And you didn't have to have a single religion. You could be quite flexible in the way in which you created and changed your religious belief. And, and in the multicultural world that we live in today, where there are all sorts of issues about how religions get on, religious tension, then maybe the Roman world has things to teach us about the nature of, of interfaith communication, of tolerance, and a whole range of things. Assimilation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So even periods in, in the deep past mm. can have really considerable lessons for the way in which we, we live in the present. And it's that combination of the, the past and the present that ultimately I find really satisfying. And your personal research at the moment? 
The thing that I'm really interested right now is, is people's relationships to objects and not in a straightforward functional way but the ways in which people build their relationships with each other, their social relations through objects, the way we attach emotional values and, and um, broader cultural values to objects and our, our human relations. And there's, there's quite a large sort of untapped area there in, in archaeology to think in, in a rather more rounded way about what it means to be human, to look at the nature of the human senses and the way in which different cultures create and emphasise particular senses. So we in the 21st century are very visual. We spend a lot of time looking at screens, of computer screens, of televisions, of various different things. But that's not necessarily so true of people in the past. And one thing that's said, say, about New Guinean people who live in the rainforest is their key sense is hearing. Because you can't see very much, but you can sing to each other, you can communicate through sound. So, so many of their metaphors for understanding, where we'd say, I see, they say, I hear. So one of the great interests of, of, of archaeology and anthropology is, is how people, how various different forms of our senses are emphasised, how that creates different relationships between people and things. And, and I'm rather slowly writing a book on the nature of human intelligence, but, but human intelligence not just as a, a mental phenomenon, but as a much more holistic notion of, of how we sense the world, how we act intelligently with each other, sensitively towards other people, towards other things, and thinking about the sort of emotional uh, impact that objects have on us. I mean, many of us have things that are extremely important, um, either from our childhood or because they, you know, are from various aspects of our lives that are important. So, so our emotional lives are obviously about other people, but they're equally about objects and, and material things in, in various different ways. So I'm, I'm interested in trying to develop a rather more rounded, holistic notion of, of how people have come to be, right from the very early days of having these you know, fairly crude stone tools, which go back a million years or so, um, through to the great range of material things that we have in the present, and the great variety of material things that people have had at various different times in the present and in the past. Professor Goldstone, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure.